turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. We're looking at Matthew 10 in somewhat of a continuation sermon, a, a part two of our sermon last week as we looked last week at Matthew 9 verse 35 to 38, and I want us just to begin our time together this morning reading and hearing what we looked at last week. In Matthew 9, verse 35, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Last week we considered the the call to prayer, the call to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And I asked you to devote your week to that, to pray that this week, to pray that God would raise up and send out laborers into his harvest field. This morning we are here and we will consider the truth that while we are all called to pray, some will be called and sent as laborers into the harvest field. My, my desire, my longing for our church is that we would be a sending church, that we would be a church that disciples faithfully those who God brings to us of all ages, and that as we disciple you and equip you for the work of ministry before you, that God would raise up from our midst men and women Boys, girls, young people, senior adults who would say, I'm called to go, and that you would go. On Wednesday night in our prayer gathering, we, we spent some time in Psalm 67. And Psalm 67 is one that many of you know and are familiar with, but in Psalm 67, we read this. We read, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us in the first verse. And that is a, a quote of the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. But verse 2 does not continue that blessing. He says in verse 1, God, be gracious to us, bless us, make your face shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. The, the longing of the psalmist is that the, the nations would know the salvation of the Lord and they would burst forth rejoicing and praising God for his great salvation. And he begins by saying, God, bless us. But it's not so that we would maintain that blessing and hold it to ourselves, but it, was be, it would be so that the nations would rejoice. That's my prayer for our church. It's the prayer of your pastors for this church. We are one local body in the kingdom of God. Just one local body. It certainly is not all up to us. It's not entirely up to us as a body to reach the nations, but we must do our part. We are called to be those who look unto the nations and go unto the nations, starting with our nation. We're called to be those who go when God calls us to go. We can't be those who just sit back and watch. My longing, my desire is that the nations would know and rejoice in salvation of God as a result of how he's blessed us. The question is this, how will they know? How will they know that salvation is of the Lord because he's blessed us if we do not go and tell them? May we be those who go. Romans 10, 13 to 15 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Grace Baptist Church, may we be a church that is a sending church. A church that prays to the Lord of the harvest and a church willing to go unto the harvest field. Before we look at Matthew 10 this morning, I want to just give you five, founda- six foundations, sorry, six foundations that I believe need to be stated for a biblical understanding of God's calling on our lives. I want to just give this as kind of the framework and understanding as we look at the calling that we see in Matthew 10. Six foundations for understanding God's call in our life. Here's the first one is the location of the fields will vary. The location of the fields will vary. We have the teaching in, in Matthew 9 here, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Pray that God would send forth laborers into the harvest. We have in John four thirty five, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. We understand that as we leave and we depart this place today, we will pass fields, literal fields in our county that are being harvested or they're ripe for harvest. They've been harvested. Just as we understand there are fields throughout our nation and literally around the globe that also are ripe for harvest, ready to be harvested. Just like that. That should be a reminder that the same is true for the souls of men and women. Those whom God is going to save. There are people down the street from us. There are people we pass today. There are people that will be sitting in a table beside us at a restaurant. There will be people who work with us on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. There will be people who sit in the desk next to us in class. There will be people on our sports teams. And we are called to take the gospel to them. There are also people throughout our state. There are people throughout our nation in Sandy, Utah, Columbus, Ohio, Montreal, Quebec, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Frankfurt, Germany, around the world, around the globe that need to hear the gospel. The location of the fields will vary. We need to understand that. Second thing we need to understand is that all believers are called to leverage their vocation in circles of influence for the sake of the gospel. All of us in here, everyone in here who professes Christ is called to leverage your vocation and your circles of influence for the sake of the gospel. We just see this. This is the the precedent that is set forth in all the New Testament, that believers are called to magnify the Lord, to be evangelistic, to share the gospel. We as pastors have the task from Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, we have the task, the responsibility to equip you for the work of ministry that God has for you. That's our task, is to equip you. It's why we consistently call you to be missions-minded. It's why we consistently call you to be evangelistic in your life, in your thinking. That we would just be gospel proclaimers, disciple-makers in the way we live. Because that is, is a responsibility that we all have. It's why we have classes like Pastor Ricky's on, on Wednesday nights where we think about how do we, how do we use our work, our business, our, our jobs for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel because that is, uh, is a responsibility we all have. It bears upon us all. We don't say, well, some are called to do that and some are not. No, we all are called to do that. It's why we exhort you to be the best mechanic, the best teacher, the best mom, the best doctor, the best carpenter, the best electrician, the best lawyer, the best businessman you can be for the glory of God. So we want to influence those around us for God's glory and for the advancement of the gospel. Third foundation is a distinction needs to be made between the general call of the Lord that rests upon all Christians and the unique particular call of the Lord upon some Christians. We need to make a distinction there. I'm not talking about a general call of the gospel message 
and a particular special call of the gospel message. I'm talking about calling upon our lives for ministry. We would understand in Scripture this general calling that rests upon all believers. There's so, many, so much we could say, but just a few things that, that I would point out to help you understand what I'm saying here. Matthew 5, 13 to 16, we're all called to be salt and light, influencing the world around us. We read in Matthew 9, 37 and 38, we're all called to pray to the Lord to send out workers into the harvest field. In Matthew 28, 19, we're all called to go and make disciples. In Romans 12, 6, we're all called to use our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we are all called to bring glory to God in all things. In 1 Peter 1.16, we're all called to live holy lives because God is holy. In 1 Peter 3.15, we're all called to be prepared to give an answer for the hope we profess. And as a matter of fact, if you want to get a big chunk of verses in Matthew 5 through 7, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and explained to you that the Sermon on the Mount was God's teaching, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' sermon to his disciples of what characterizes the life of the believer, the kingdom ethic. All of these are incumbent upon all of us. But there's a unique, particular calling of God among some believers, and we can't neglect this. We can't say, oh, well, since everyone's called to do everything, we never call out people to go into gospel ministry, pastoral ministry, missions ministry. No, we can't do that because we see in Scripture that there is indeed a unique, particular calling of God on some believers. Understand that God God intentionally and purposefully calls out some into full-time gospel ministry. We read in Jeremiah 1.5 of Jeremiah's call of the Lord that God set him aside as a prophet before he was even born. We read a similar thing in Luke 1, 16 and 17 that John the Baptist was set aside to prepare the way for the Messiah. Then we read in Acts 13, 2 to 3, where Paul and Barnabas are called by the Holy Spirit to go and the church sends them out. We read Paul's testimony in Galatians 1, 15 and 16 that God had set him apart before he was born and called him by his grace to preach to the Gentiles. We read time and time again of the prophets in the Old Testament. We read about the disciples in our passage today in Matthew 10, 5 to 15. We read about it again in Luke 9, 1 to 6 that the disciples are sent out as the 12. And then we read again in Luke 10, 1 through 12 that Jesus not only sends 12 out, but he sends 70 out for the purpose of gospel advancement. And just as a side note, if you want something very close to you, there's five men among you who would profess to you today that God has called us to pastoral ministry and we stand among you and seek to shepherd you as best we can because at some point in our life, God gave us a call into pastoral ministry. The fourth foundation is that one called to gospel ministry is not elevated in value or importance above one who is not. We're the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, both talk about the body of Christ and that every part has an important purpose. It doesn't mean that because I'm a pastor that I am more valuable to God, that God loves me more than you. No, I simply have a different calling on my life, a different responsibility. So we are not elevated in value or importance. I don't want you to think that this morning. Number five, in order for the church to be effective, it must be made up of those who both sinned and go. That's the importance of the truth we look at this morning, that all are called to pray, some are going to be called to go. The church is made up of both. We'll look at that in Acts 13 in a few minutes. And finally, number six, none of us should assume that God is not or would not be calling us to go. None of us should assume that. It said last week as we closed our time and we prayed the prayer, God send out workers unto the harvest field. I told you that one thing that that prayer means is that it means praying it knowing that I may indeed be the answer to my own prayer. That God may say, absolutely, now you go. None of us should assume that that would not be true 
of our own lives. Let's read our text this morning in Matthew chapter 10. Mind you, in 938, he said, Therefore pray earnestly. Chapter 10, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if, if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, I, or sorry, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town and we will this morning look primarily at verses 1 through 10 we'll save 11 to 15 to kind of begin our time next week as they're closely linked and we'll speak to that this morning as we walk through verses 1 through 10 I, I want to just point out three principles that we'll see about God's unique calling to gospel ministry first as we look at chapter 10 the first thing we need to recognize in Verse 1 through 2 is we see Jesus calling of the 12 disciples. This is the first time that we read of 12 particular set-aside disciples in our Lord's ministry. 4, 18 to 22 in Matthew told of the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? And when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he is giving it to all of his disciples. Generically, all those who had gathered around came and, and heard him. In chapter 9, verse 9, we read of the calling of Matthew. So we know that there are five particular disciples who have been called, and now we read of the 12. I don't, this probably is not the first time these 12 are recognized. They probably are recognized. We don't understand this as the original calling of the 12, but he's pointing them out and listing them for us. Why were they called? Mark gives us some insight into that. In Mark three fourteen, he says that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, we'll talk about that in just a moment, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Certainly the same precedent for us, that we are believers and we have been called into Christ, that we might be with him, we might have communion with him, union in Christ, and then be sent out for Christ, sent out to bear the gospel. The 12, I believe, is an important qualifier here. We look, I just want you to, to look up back to verse uh, or 938. In, in 938, it's an unqualified statement, or verse 37, I'm sorry. In verse 37, it's unqualified. He just says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, labors are few, therefore pray earnestly. There's no qualification of which disciples are here. It's, it's gathered and, and very highly likely that it's just whoever was in earshot, anyone who was following them, the crowd that believed, whatever believers were present, he says to pray earnestly. But then we read here in chapter 10, verse 1, it says he called to him his 12 disciples. So he speaks this call to pray, and then he gathers his 12. He says, now you 12, come here. 
come here. They've been praying. They've been charged to pray. Now he says, you 12, come to me. And he sends them out. He calls the 12 to himself. And in verse 2, we read something important. The 12 disciples in verse 2 are called the 12 apostles. Disciple simply means one who is a learner, a follower. While an apostle is one who is a messenger, one who is sent, one who is commissioned for a task, one who would go forth and represent their messenger, a representative, an ambassador. The disciples are now apostles. And so the first principle that we see here and we think about 937 through 102, really even down to 105, is that all are called to pray, some are called to go. That's our first principle that I want you to understand this morning. All are called to pray, some are called to go. We need to recognize that this morning. We need to be those who are earnestly praying for God to send out laborers into his harvest field, but we need to do so, as was said earlier and last week, we need to do so willing to go. It won't be all of us. It may be some of us. It may be some of us. The apostles were sent out by the Lord as his messengers. They were sent. The 12 were not the only ones who believed in Christ. They were not the only ones who were sitting under his teaching and following him, but they were the ones that he sent out in this moment. In verses 2 to 4, we have the apostles named. It's a diverse group, right? It's a, what you might even say is a pretty ragtag group. It's a group that maybe didn't share a lot in common when they're first called. It's a group that some of them we really don't know much about. We don't know. Some we know a great deal about, others we don't. We come and we know that some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, there were religious zealots in the group. More than likely, most, if not all of them, were teenagers that Jesus called unto himself. We go on to learn as we read throughout the New Testament and even into church history, but in the New Testament, we learn that they're doubters, they're deceivers, they're deniers. It's an interesting group. I appreciated what one commentator noted. He said this, we cannot fail to be impressed with the majesty of the Savior whose drawing power, incomparable wisdom, and matchless love are so astounding that he was able to gather around himself and to unite into one family men of entirely different, at times even opposite, backgrounds and temperaments. Included in this little band was Peter the optimist, but also Thomas the pessimist, Simon the one-time zealot, hating taxes and eager to overthrow the Roman government, but also Matthew, who had voluntarily offered his tax-collecting services to that same Roman government. Peter, John, and Matthew, destined to become renowned through their writings, but also James the less, who remains obscure, but must have fulfilled his mission. It's an interesting group. It's a diverse group. It's a group gathered by Christ, and it reminds us of the beauty of the family of God, the family of God that we come as those very diverse in backgrounds, very diverse in skills and talents, very diverse in everything that we are. But we're united under the blood of Christ. We're reminded of that in Ephesians 2, the the household of faith. It says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being held together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's unity and diversity because that we are unified in Christ. These ordinary young men are called by the Lord. And I think it gives us our second principle this morning. We think about our calling of the Lord. Our second principle is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses ordinary men and women to do great and mighty things. We look throughout Scripture and we see the calling of the Lord and it comes upon all sorts of believers. And what that teaches us, what it should remind us this morning is that there is no one in here 
too insignificant as a believer, too normal of a believer, too unknown as a believer, that God would not call you into the harvest field. There's no one that would say, you know, I just am not good at that. I just don't know if I can do this, that God would not say, I'm going to call you and equip you and send you into the harvest field. We move on through verses 5 through 8. We read of Jesus sending out the 12. Verse 2, we, we read that he gave them authority. He gave them authority. Verse 5, go, he instructs them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So he's given these, these men authority. It's the one, he's the one who taught with authority, the one who demonstrated authority, the great and wondrous acts with authority, the one who forgave, showing his authority to forgive sins. Now he grants specific authority to these men who would go out for the mission he's called them unto. It reminds us that only one who has authority can give authority, right? Christ has authority and he sins with authority in this moment. It's a reminder that he gives us in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples. The one who has authority, grants authority, and sends out men for a mission. In verse 5 through 6, we see him sending them with a specific focus. He sends them to who? The lost sheep, the house of Israel. Those who previously, he has stated, were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. We talked about the importance of that last week, that that should never be uttered of the people of God. And so he sends them first to proclaim the gospel, to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sends them first, first among the people of God. He isn't sending them to Gentiles at this point. He sends them to his people, to the Israelites. The Jews would be the first that the apostles were sent to. He's sending them to those he was sent to. He says it in Matthew 15, 24. He heals a Canaanite woman's daughter, but he says this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It didn't mean that, that Jesus never showed compassion. He never worked in the lives of Gentiles. He did, but his focus was on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It wouldn't be until later as we see the mission unfolding, that Jesus commissions us to go to all nations. In Matthew 28, 19, the very end of the book, right? We just, we've referred to it a lot this morning already. That we're called to make disciples of all nations, all nations, not only to the Jews. We would read later in Acts 1, 8, that the people of God, the disciples are called to go to the ends of the earth. We would understand Paul when he refers to himself as saying he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see the church, the early church in Acts, spreading the gospel among the Gentiles. It is the mission of God expanding. But here, what we're reading today is that Jesus sends them on a very particular, a very focused, a very specific mission. And he granted them and gave them authority to do what was required in that mission. So the third principle we see here is that God uniquely calls and equips us for particular tasks and roles that he calls us to. He uniquely calls and equips us for particular tasks and roles he calls us to. We have this Again, throughout scriptures, examples of God calling men and women to unique tasks and roles, equipping them to do what he calls them to do. We see Jesus giving them here a particular authority, a particular message, a particular focus for the task at hand. I can look in my own life and say, you know what, God has called and equipped me to pastor a local body of believers. He has not called me or equipped me to be a missionary or to be a church planter or to be an evangelist. He's called and equipped me for this task. But he has called others to those things. Perhaps even some of you. In chapter 10, verse 7 through 10, we see the manner of ministry that he calls them to. 
We talked about a, a particular task, a particular focus, and we see what this will look like. He kind of fleshes out what it's going to look like for them. They were to proclaim the message that Jesus proclaimed. You read there in verse 7 that as they go, they were to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message that we read of in Matthew 3, 2, and 4, 17. It's the same message that John the Baptist and Jesus was proclaiming. They were proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We understand in Mark 6, Mark's parallel passage to this, Mark explains that they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. The understanding here is that we would just understand that, that Matthew's focused on, on calling God's people to realize that the kingdom is at hand to turn and to come into the kingdom of God, that repentance would probably be assumed in Matthew's writing here, but they were to proclaim the, the message that Jesus proclaimed, that message that Jesus gave them. They were also to do the things that Jesus did. They were to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, we read this and we need to read this and be careful when we think about how we interpret Scripture and understand that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive of what was going on in this moment. It's not prescriptive for every aspect of ministry, every, uh, every believer. We need to understand that. It's especially important to understand, when we understand that when we read narratives in Scripture. We read narratives, accounts of what was happening, accounts of what was taught, accounts of events. We understand that these are descriptions of what happened. And simply because something is described in the Bible doesn't mean that it's mandated or prescribed that it has to be that way in your life, if that makes sense. What we do, though, understand is that we glean and understand the principles from that, Right? So we understand that this is describing what Jesus did and what he granted them to do in sending them out for this mission. We don't see this, or elsewhere in the New Testament, prescribed as this is what your mission will look like. It has to look like and have these things. We need to discern between descriptive and prescriptive and glean the principles that we can gain from narrative text. The next thing we see is that we see that they were not to require payment for ministry. Jesus says that you receive without paying, give without pay. You, you didn't receive the gospel by paying for the gospel. You didn't say, oh, well, here, let me give you this many talents, and that way I can hear the gospel message. No, Jesus said you received without paying. Now go and give without paying. Ministry was not, be, not to be for the purpose of profit. They were not to be selling prayers. That still goes on today. You can go, and I, I've been in places where you can pay this much, you can drop a dollar or five dollars into a, a jar, and then you go and you light a candle, and then you can put your prayer up. Paying for prayers. It's an active business. That was in Montreal, Canada. It's the same era of Johann Tetzel, right? You remember this? Tomorrow's Reformation Day, Right? The day in 1517 that Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the wall or to the church in Wittenberg. Well, the thing that kind of pushes him over the edge is what? Tetzel's going around, he's selling indulgences. Selling indulgences, right? To, to pull lost souls out of heaven or out of hell into heaven. And that's too much. Luther can't take it. There's no more. Luther goes and he nails 95 theses to the wall, 95 points of discussion for the church that he confronts them on. We don't charge for ministry. You don't come into the hallway, the offices there during the week and say, hey, uh, how much would it cost me to be able to talk to you for five minutes? <laughs> well, I'll give you a deal today. You know, charge you more than that guy. I don't know. We don't charge for ministry. We don't make hospital visits for pay. We don't share the gospel for pay. And then we see right away then, right, verse 10, he says to take no bag for your journey or tunics or sandals or staff for the laborer deserves his food. We see here the understanding the principle that, that they were to accept support in general for their ministry from those that they minister to. Now, this, this re I don't think the ESV reads really clearly on this. I'm going to read from you. I know um, the NIV. I think the NIV captures the meaning of this text, verses 9 to 10. Because when you look at verse 9, it says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. 
It almost sounds like he's saying, as you go, if that comes upon you, don't acquire that. Don't, don't take that. The, the meaning there is more take. Don't take it with you. Don't get it together and then go. And that's how the NIV translates it. And it's just easier for us to understand English. Verse 9 and 10 in the NIV says, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the work. The worker is worth his keep. What Jesus is saying here is you don't need to worry about all of those things to take with you. Trust the Lord. Trust his provision as you go forth on his mission. Trust him to provide for you. Now, now later in the gospels, Jesus would look at, at his disciples and say, you need to gather everything you need because you're going out and it's going to be rough, right? But in this moment, he says, don't take all that with you. Go and then he says the labor deserves his food. We see the principle here and we see it throughout the New Testament that a minister of the gospel or someone who has devoted themselves to gospel ministry is worthy of support. It's what 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So we have those two things going on that we don't profiteer as pastors, but the church is right in supporting his pastors, what they need. So it just reminds you of those three principles this morning. Three principles when we think about our calling, that all are called to pray, some are called to go. The second one, that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And third, God uniquely calls and equips us for a particular task and roles. So here's the question. Are you called to go? Am I called to go is a question that we must consider. It's a question that we must wrestle with. I've wrestled hard with that question twice in my life. One resulted in me standing here before you, coming to Somerset, Kentucky. The other one resulted in me staying in Somerset, Kentucky. See, when I was in college and the Lord was doing great works in my life and teaching me and putting people in my life and opportunities in my life to serve and to be around ministry and to grow in Him, I began sensing this call to ministry. I was an architecture major at the time. But God was calling me into pastoral ministry. And I wrestled with that for a multitude of reasons. I wrestled with that because what would it look like to change my entire path? What would it look like for me to go into gospel ministry? I couldn't even, I think I've shared with you before in high school, I, it panicked me. It gave me great anxiety and stress to even talk in front of people, to give any kind of a speech or anything in front of class. I absolutely hated it. I would just bumble my way right through it. You may be saying, well, you're doing the same thing this morning. That's where I was. That's who I was. I wrestled with it because... I knew things I had done and how I lived in high school up to that point, decisions I made. How could God use me? Then I remember sitting down with my, one of my pastors, my student pastor at the time, and him encouraging me and speaking truth into my life and reminding me that God does not cast guilt upon you and weigh you down with guilt. There is forgiveness and no condemnation in Christ that God uses the people he calls, he equips the people he calls. And I remember him saying, you know what? I'm gonna pray for you. I'm gonna encourage you. I see this in your life, but I'm gonna pray and I want you to pray that God would affirm that through his people. Okay, what does that look like? I don't know, we're just gonna pray. And we did and Larry Townsend walks up to me a few days later out of the blue and says, you're doing a great job. I just really appreciate the way you're working with these students. Have you ever thought about going into ministry? Mm-hmm. We talked a few weeks later. Tom Abbott had a similar conversation with me. I had people, the people of God, coming and encouraging me. 
And so I changed everything, was no longer architecture major, and from that time on worked and sought after God's call in my life for pastoral ministry that ultimately brought me to Somerset, Kentucky in 2001. Several years later after that, we were going on mission trips and went with a lot of you in here. Never experienced something like that, seeing the need internationally. Seeing how many, how what ripe the harvest fields truly were. And I started wrestling. Do I need to leave? Do we need to take our family to the mission field? And this is the Bible Belt. Why am I even here? I had these weird categories set up in my mind, probably from some unhealthy teaching years prior, that really committed Christians were missionaries. Kind of the, the next level were pastors, well, actually church planters. And then after that were pastors in places where there's not a lot of believers and then under that were pastors in the Bible Belt. Kind of the lowest, lowest of the commitment level there. So maybe I wasn't committed enough. And I wrestled with that. I was just sitting and praying and seeking God's counsel and wisdom. And the thing that I learned that God taught me through, again, His people, through His Word... Is that all are called to pray? Some are called to equip. Some are called to go. My calling, my understanding is that I was to be a pastor who would raise up and equip people to go. A pastor that would strive to send out laborers into the harvest field. And thanks be to God, we've seen that. So thankful for young people around the globe that have been sent out. So how do you know? How do you know this morning? How do you know if you're called? Acts 13. I want to read you Acts 13, 1 to 3. It says, there were in the church at Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, verse 2, if you're flipping, this is Acts 13, I'm in verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And we see two things happening in this text. We see the, the work and calling of God. And then we see the confirmation, affirmation of the church. So how do you know? You wrestle through that, God, am I called? Are you calling me? The first thing you need to be aware of and look to is this internal call, this aspiration, this desire, this longing for ministry, a work of the Holy Spirit within you that gives you the longing, the desire for gospel ministry. It is a God-given desire. Jerry Bridges talks about, or not Jerry Bridges, sorry, Charles Bridges. Charles Bridges talks about the call is being from God and then it is confirmed by the church that God would issue forth this call within you, this longing, this desire. It's, it's kind of what we, we hear resounding in 1 Timothy 3, 1, when we look at the qualifications for elders. And Paul writes this, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There is a, a longing, a desire to do that. I, I had this weird category, this weird thing in my mind at one time that, that God would never call you to do something you want to do. I actually sat down with my youth pastor and said, how do I know? I mean, I, I just, I like ministry. Surely God wouldn't call me to something like that. <laughs> Why would he not? Why would God not put a desire in you and call you 
to that which he plants that desire into in gospel ministry. Again, Charles Bridges, when talking about this internal call of the Lord, he says, God implants a love in the heart for the service to which he calls. God implants that love in your heart, this internal call, this internal longing that you sense that God is leading you, directing you. It's what we see here in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. We don't know what that means. We just know that the Holy Spirit set them apart. It was the work of God in their lives. But the second thing, we have this internal call, but we also see an external call, an external affirmation that we need to be aware of. We have this internal calling, this internal sense, but there's also this external affirmation, confirmation from the church. That's what we see in verse 3. What do they do? It says, after, or then after fasting and praying, the church says they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They confirmed that calling and sent them off. They sent Barnabas and Paul to the mission to which God had called them to. Again, a, a specific work, a specific calling, a specific mission. When he says that Barnabas and Saul uh, set apart from, for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work. It's a singular, uh, singular word, the work, not works to which I've called them, but the work. And the church comes around and confirms that, affirms that, lays their hands on them and sends them out. There should be a, a competency, a giftedness recognized by the church. I'm so thankful for the encouragement of men and women in my local church. When I committed to going to gospel ministry, they came alongside of me and encouraged me and said, just built me up in so many ways. There were some of my early sermons, and they were awful. And that's not a joke. They were terrible. I, I went through some files one time and found them and went, oh, oh those poor, poor blessed souls. You know, I mean, just, they were bad. And afterwards, I know these people came. They encouraged me in that. They built me up. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for them recognizing, encouraging different gifts and, and traits that, that God had given me, giftedness and encouragement, that, knowing that I was so immature. I was so young. I was so green. I'm thankful for their words, their, their affirmation. The people of God are the best to affirm you in your calling. I've had people in the past who say, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to go into ministry. And the question I had to ask, I didn't want to ask it. I didn't want to discourage them. But the next question I had to ask was, when are you going to start going to church? Like, I can't affirm you as a pastor to go into ministry when you're not even being faithful today. The church comes alongside those who are called and affirms and builds them up and confirms and agrees with the leading of the Lord in your life. Be faithful here. Be faithful now. Serve the Lord now. Minister now. Obey the Lord now. And when God calls, if he's calling you now, if he's calls you in five years, in that instance, then the church comes alongside you and says, Amen. We see it. We see it and we want to support you. That's why when we send seminary students away, they make us fill out a form and we bring that to you and we say, hey, we want to uh, support and send you Dalton Till. Would you affirm Dalton Till as going to seminary? And you as a church confirm that and say, yes, we're going to send Dalton. Why? Because we saw the evidence of Dalton's life. We saw his commitment to the Lord. We saw evidence that he was called. And so the church agreed and confirmed that. Be faithful today. Ask yourself that question. Am I called? Is God calling me into gospel ministry? In the pastoral prayer, we prayed for 11 churches, just 11 that I know of, in our area that have no pastor. There are literally people groups around the globe that have never heard the name of Christ. If you say, can I tell you about Jesus? They literally say, Who? There are places with no church to go to. Places where scripture is not in their language. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Let's pray to the Lord of harvest to send out workers. Let's pray earnestly for that. Fervently for that. Unceasingly for that. And let's do so knowing that that may be us that answers that prayer. 
It may be our lives. It may be our kids that God says, yes, go. It may be any number of us that God gathers into himself and says, come, here's the mission, now go. I I want you to know just on a a practical level, when you leave today, if you are wondering about whether or not you're called, and I, I would covet the opportunity to talk with you or one of the pastors, we would love to talk to you. We have something here that, that you hopefully are familiar with. It's called Grace Mitt. And if you leave as you depart at the back table, there's the Great Commission Resource Center. You'll see these little sheets. We keep them there available. And it is, all it is, it tells you the path, the phase. What it is, Grace Mitt is ministry intensive training. It's an opportunity for us as pastors to pour into you. There are four men right now that we meet with every Wednesday night. After everything's done, we sit in the library and we go through Grace Mitt. That we're just trying to disciple and train. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like down the road for these four men. We don't know if it just means more intensive, more focused ministry here. We don't know if it means pastoral ministry somewhere else. We don't know if it means the mission field somewhere else. But we want to be faithful to equip you for God's calling on your life. And if you are questioning that and you're saying, I think God may be calling me. I just don't know. I I need wisdom. Come talk to us. Come explore. Grab this sheet on your way out. We'll we'll put a little journal in your hands. It's one of the things that we typically do after we meet with you. If we agree and go forward, there's a journal called to ministry that we want you to work through. And it'll make you think through and wrestle through questions and, and pray about this. To look at the qualifications in Scripture that God lays out for pastoral ministry, for those called to do gospel ministry. We would love to sit down with you. The fields are ripe. The fields are ripe. The laborers are few. Let's be a church that is ascending church. Let's pass the promise. And let's pass that promise not just to our sons and daughters. We need to be faithfully doing that at home. But let's pass that promise, the promise that salvation comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. Let's pass that promise in our businesses, in our schools, on our ball teams, in another state, in this state, around the globe, wherever God calls us. Let's be faithful to pass that promise because it is a beautiful promise that eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Only through Jesus Christ. We know the promise. We rejoice in the promise. We stand and we sing of the promise. Now let's pass the promise. Are you called? Are you called? Are you called? Let's pray.